This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Equity Mike! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Uh, very excited for this episode. The world just ticked over 8 billion people. Well, Did. just a couple of weeks ago now. So demographics are on our mind and we've got an expert investor here to talk all things the investing opportunity in the world's changing demographic. Oh yeah, fascinating concept and it is our pleasure to welcome to the studio portfolio manager, Oliver Hextel. Oliver, welcome. Hi guys, thanks very much for having me on. So Oliver is portfolio manager of the Fidelity Global Demographics Fund and uh, we're going to be unpacking uh, what it is and what it means to invest in the thematic of demographics. We're going to have an, a look at the outlook for 2023 and then focus in on supply chains and automation and, of course, close out with some stock-specific conversation. Uh, but, Oliver, we are getting close to the end of the year and we will discuss the outlook for 2023, as I said. But in one sentence, how would you summarise 2022? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think 2022 has been a, has been a very interesting year on a, on a number of levels. And I think, you know, it's hard to put it into one sentence, really. But I'd say it's, it's there have been so many different things that we've had to deal with in markets. And obviously, it's been a pretty tricky time for markets overall. So hopefully, we're looking forward to a better time in 2023. Yeah. What do we mean when we talk about demographics? And why invest in demographics? Or why does it create a better investable opportunity than any of the other options we have to invest in? When we talk about demographics, what we're really talking about are the, the characteristics of the population, of the, of the global population, and how those characteristics are changing over time, whether that's the age of a population, the wealth levels of a population, the income levels of a population. It sounds a little bit abstract, demographics, but these are really trends that affect pretty much everyone on the planet in, in one way or another at some point in their lives. And, and some of them are positive trends. So, you know, one of our themes is... is emerging wealth creation. Some of them are more negative, you know, around the pressures that an aging population puts on society or on around how do we supply water or, or energy sustainably to a, to a growing population. So, 
you know, some of these challenges are the, are the biggest challenges facing the world, and we think we're trying to invest behind companies that, that can solve some of those problems. And the reason we think it's such an, uh, a fascinating investment theme is partly because it's such a, a broad opportunity set, so there, there really are a lot of opportunities to get behind. But second of all, you know, these trends really are extremely long-lasting and extremely visible um, and extremely predictable, we would say, relative to some other trends. So it's very, very difficult, for example, to change the aging dynamics of a population, at least, at least in the short term. And what we think that does as an investment opportunity is it, it gives us the confidence that when we're looking at companies to really build conviction in the growth drivers over a long period of time, because we're typically looking you know, five, 10 years ahead. Um, because despite the fact that these are extremely visible and we can have high, high confidence in them playing out, they often do get lost in the, in the short term because they are pretty slow moving. Um, and so that means that we can have conviction in the companies that we're, we're investing behind. But also, if there, are short, if there is short-term noise where some of these trends get lost, then we can have real confidence in, in picking up these companies. And that creates great investment opportunities, we think. Yeah, it's an interesting one with such a large, I guess, thematics and particularly growth of the middle class, for example. Like, you could easily sort of assume that we take... Asia is an example and and you could just assume that we'll make an investment thesis that with the growth of the middle class, more spending, um, more consuming, general economic output is going to improve and general, you know, innovation and GDP and all those things. So you could just say, I'm going to take an ETF that kind of broadly tracks that market. Why why is it better to think about an active approach versus something like that? Yeah, so, so we at Fidelity, obviously, we are very strong believers in the active approach. All three of us as portfolio managers on the fund have come through the Fidelity model where we're really focused on looking at companies from the bottom up, so in, in great depth. So every analyst will cover sort of 20 to 30 stocks and they know them inside out all around the world. They know the value chains, they know the industries. And I think, you know, when we think about our themes, yeah, for example, Better Lives, which is the play on emerging market wealth, you know, it is a, it's an all-encompassing trend and, and a lot of companies play into that. You know, we think that the middle class will represent around two-thirds of the population by 2050, which is up around from around 50% today. And if you look at Asia-Pacific specifically, uh, that, that equates to almost a tripling in spend over that period. So it's a huge opportunity. But at the same time, you know, you just have to look at stocks in the market and not all of them, despite being exposed to that theme, um, outperform over time or, or even perform particularly well over time. There is a massive divergence in, in these stocks and how they do, despite the fact that you could argue they're all exposed to similar trends. So what we think is the opportunity is to really find the best plays on each of the themes that we're trying to invest behind. And that, that for us is comes from doing the detailed work, from, from meeting the companies, from really understanding the value chains, from really understanding the competitive advantages that some of the companies have relative to others. Um, and, and so that's where we think the opportunity lies. And also we have a very strong focus in the fund on quality, the quality of a business franchise and the quality of the financials of a business. Um, and that's because we really are thinking very long term, sort of 5, 10, 15, 20 years ideally, um, and so we believe that if we can own a company that has, has competitive advantages, it will continue to generate stronger profits through cycle. It will generate more cash flows and ultimately, and, and hopefully will have better sustainability credentials as well, which will then, as the world changes, will we'll put it in good stead. 
Um, and so we think that not only are we investing behind these themes, but it's very, very important to pick the best companies that play into those themes rather than just buying a buying an index. Well, Oliver, uh, you're thinking very long term uh, at the Global Demographics Fund. Uh, the three themes, more lives, better lives, longer lives play out over decades. We're going to bring you a little bit closer to the present day and uh, talk about, I guess, some more short term predictions. Uh we're going to talk about the outlook for 2023. And I think if we were really talking about some of the key things for this year, we'd be looking at inflation, China, Russia, interest rates. They're some of the key buzzwords uh, of the year that's gone by. Do you have any thoughts on what we'll be talking about this time next year? And, you know, demographics play out over a long time time horizon but is there any outlook or anything that's relevant for your fund in 2023 i think first of all we're not trying to take big macro bets in the fund you know we are very focused on the bottom up and and the stock the individual stocks and how they're positioned but obviously particularly at a time like this when it's been so volatile and there there are so many macro cross currents and we obviously do have to factor that into our analysis and i think you know looking ahead in, in the very short term at least you've still got inflation coming through everywhere Interest rates are still rising in many economies. You've got geopolitical tensions that aren't going away. You've got the war. You've got you've got plenty of risks. I think we have seen markets move up quite a bit recently. Multiples at a simplistic level are not particularly cheap, particularly in developed markets. So I think we would be still relatively cautious, at least in the short term. But for us in the demographics fund, we, we think that you know the trends don't change. As I said, they're very long-lasting and, and we're trying to pay them in a very long-term view. And also, we think that the attributes of our companies, so the high quality nature that I was talking about, um, something like pricing power is a key thing that we look for. And and in an inflation environment, that stands in very good stead. Downgrades are likely to come through at some point. You know, lots of people talk about the recession, but we haven't actually seen that in many parts of the economy yet in terms of um, earnings outlooks. And so we think, again, that the quality of our companies stand in a good stead for having more resilient earnings than some other parts of the market. So... For us, although we think that the outlook is still highly uncertain, we actually we hope that our trends, well, we know that our trends won't change and we, we don't expect to have to change the portfolio too much because of our focus on some of these attributes. Well, what do you think that people might be getting wrong about the view for next year? I think I don't know what people are getting wrong exactly. I think it's interesting at the moment because sometimes when you're reading outlook pieces, everyone is all very clustered around the same sort of outlook. I think now the world is so uncertain that you can you can make a case for all sorts of different outcomes this year. So I think you can always find different views. I think what we're thinking about in the fund is is just really trying to understand, you know, the environment today is very different to what we've had for the past 10, 15 years. And I think, you know, when, when you look back and we've had very low inflation, we've had very low interest rates, and that's created an investment environment that has seen multiples rise very, very quickly. It's seen massive leadership in, in some specific parts of the market. And so what we're trying to do internally in the fund is understand what has changed, how persistent those changes are going to be, um, and I think it's likely that we will see very different leadership going forwards from here. Um, and so it's just trying to understand those changes and make sure that we're, we're ahead of them in, in what is a very different investing environment today than it has been. So when, when you're thinking about those changes, when you're thinking about opportunities, you know, demographic themes play out over a long time period. But uh, this current pricing opportunity, this current market downturn where you can maybe pick up something on a bargain for, for a bargain may not last too much longer. Hopefully won't last too much longer. Hopefully we see markets rally. So where are you looking? 
region-wise, sector-wise, uh, for opportunities to capitalise on the hopefully the buying opportunity that this moment presents? Um, within the fund, we're not we're not changing a huge amount still at the moment. I think what, what we have seen though is is probably two areas that, that are particularly attractive, and it, and it does come down to the way valuations have changed over the past year or so. So, you know, we are aiming to own the best in class companies playing into all of our themes, the real long-term winners. A lot of those names have been trading very expensively, so on very high multiples over the past couple of years, which is which has put us off or, or where we haven't seen really attractive upside. So I think one area that we, we have been looking into and trying to sort of build positions is companies that we've always wanted to own, long-term winners, um, but where valuations have been too high. So now that they're coming off, we're starting to buy the position. So an example of that might be ASML in the semiconductor capex space, very high quality company, great outlook, dominant position in its market, but has been quite expensive. Still short term question mark, but we've you know we can start to build a position. We think, um, and the other area of the market that, that we find very interesting is stocks that are um, very cyclical and are expecting a recession. You can see in the numbers that people are expecting things to weaken and valuations are very low versus history. But where we think actually. Some of the dynamics that we've seen recently mean that earnings, the earnings might be more resilient than people are expecting. And so, you know, when we think about what's happening with supply chains, for example, it means that production in a lot of parts of the world and lots of industries is actually still relatively low versus history. And so despite the fact that we're coming into a, a downturn probably or, or, or a weaker period of demand, actually production is so low that can create a bit of a base for some of the, uh, for some of the earnings outlets. So, one one area there would, would be some automotive suppliers, which have already which are already operating at kind of pretty recessionary um, production levels, and we think that provides a bit of a, a base. Things can always get worse, but we think that provides a bit of a base for, for earnings. Whilst at the same time, the valuations are now pretty close to to, to trough levels um, versus history. So I think that's kind of two areas that we're looking for, and then. Other than that, we just continue to invest um, and make sure all, always that our companies are, are thematically pure, fit with our themes. Um, and, and we're fortunate because we do have a, a pretty broad array of opportunity sets and, and companies that we can invest in. Yeah, it feels like you could almost funnel any company <laughs> into a large demographic theme. But let's turn, you mentioned their supply chains, you mentioned their automation and uh, you know, in, in preparing this episode, it came through that you were a bit of a, a specialist, I think, in in supply chains. So how do supply chains as, uh, I guess, an industry or an investment opportunity fit into demographics? Which part of the fund do you do you put sort of supply chains in inverted commas? Yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, it's obviously been a very, a very tough year or a couple of years for supply chains. I think where we've We've seen coming out of COVID, first of all, um, the pressures that put on, on the manufacturing side, the production side, everything shut down. And then we've had a big imbalance of demand as, as demand has rebounded in some parts of the world. And, and while production has still been pretty tough, what companies and people have realized is, is the risks around having supply chains really concentrated in certain regions or, or with certain suppliers. And at the same time, you've had rising geopolitical tensions which I think sadly are not are not going away and so people have, have have looked at how can they resolve some of these issues and maybe supply chains were extremely efficient that brought risk with it and so I think for us in the fund there's kind of two main areas that we think this this will lead into and they're, they're obviously interrelated but these would be automation and then also 
um, nearshoring or, or reshoring. When we think about reshoring or nearshoring, this is a play on people trying, to, companies trying to rearrange their supply chain so that they are building factories and manufacturing capacity closer to home or closer to their customers, um, and also diversifying where they are building products and also limiting the amount of time they have to spend or the, or the complexity of getting products from, from where they're made to where they're actually bought. And within that, that involves a lot of build out of manufacturing capacity. And so that is, is part of a driver for automation. Uh, because obviously, when you build a new factory, you need to put in um, some of the factory automation processes, some of the robotics, some of the other uh, pieces that come with it. But also, obviously, as we've seen, there have been increasingly inflationary pressures, and particularly around labor cost inflation. We've seen that the economics of investing in automation have also improved at the same time. Uh, because just the cost of labor has got so much more expensive today that actually a robot looks better value. And at the same time, we know that some of the technology has improved so much with robotics that the, the opportunity, for, the capability now is so much better that actually you can do many different things with it. So that for us, this fits mostly into the, um, into the more lives bucket. So as there are more people in the world, we need to be able to produce more and more things more efficiently. Um, but it also fits into the longer lives bucket because one of the key things we're seeing with an aging population is the pressure it puts on the workforce, which is shrinking, whilst the population of retirees is, is growing dramatically. So we need to be more efficient. And obviously also robots don't get COVID. So that's the other, oh. other benefit <laughs> that people are seeing. Yeah, just on that, you said that uh, at the start, um, you know, supply chains have had a, a shocking year. And for those, like everyone's experienced it. Everyone's had a parcel that's taken way too long to get here or orders of things that just haven't rocked up. But for those that aren't in the know and have just had the blanket, oh, co- it's because of COVID, what, what actually has happened to supply chains globally? Is it, is it literally just people getting sick and not being able to be at the wharfs and be on ships and those sorts of things? Is that what's happened? At a simplistic level, uh, that's, you know, that's been the biggest driver. That's, at least that's been the catalyst. But the problem is then I think the supply chains have been so interrelated and so managed closely together. So you have the sort of just-in-time inventory phenomenon or you have product that it's you know people are so desperate to keep inventory levels low and to remain efficient that as soon as there's a small shock somewhere what i think people have realized is that is that the the flow through effects are enormous and i think you know there's as you say it's affected everyone in the world but but you know i my speciality is is consumer at the moment as as an analyst and i talking to companies there some of the sporting goods companies it used to cost five dollars to ship a pair of trainers from asia where they're created to to europe or the us um, to sell them and at times over the past year it's been costing 25 to 30 dollars and when you think about you're selling these shoes for maybe 50 60 dollars you realize how much of the profitability has been that's that's eaten into that's a huge problem and then you think about uh semiconductor chips which is another big problem area and again this has really come down to not only not having the workers in the factories and the factories being shut but also the 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 components and and the raw materials that you need to build these products have been have got stuck so not only has it been covid but then you also you've had the war in uh in ukraine which is some, some key components come out of that you've had sanctions on russia even something like crypto has has taken a lot of chips out of which may have gone somewhere else so I think that you know you have had a bit of a perfect storm um, for supply chains over the past few years, um, but I think you know something like semiconductors again that's just 
that's impacted everything from cars to computing, all of these things. So for supply chains, you know, everyone has seen it and it's been very painful for everyone. It's, and it's really just been a, a combination of factors, COVID, the war, geopolitical tensions, the lack of capacity in air freight, again, when you haven't had commercial passenger jets flying, so we haven't been able to ship things as easily. And all of these things have added up to make people realise how when you have such an interconnected supply chain, it creates risks. And you, you only need a small shop, and we've had big shocks, to create huge problems. So we're seeing these problems and we've got this long-term tailwind of more people uh, in the world, more people having disposable income, more people being online. And if Bryce's recent online shopping that for some reason gets delivered to our office is any indication, <laughs> more people spending more on e-commerce sites. Is the investment thesis around supply chains just rebound and like an earnings rebound post this COVID disruption? Or are you seeing particular, you know, business model disruption, technological disruption that gets you really excited as a portfolio manager? I think it's more than just a rebound. I think you're seeing a structural shift, actually. And I think automation is, is a really exciting opportunity as, as a result of this. And I think, you know, I mean, maybe we talk about one, one of the stocks in the fund is, uh, is, is a company called Keyence, which is a, a Japanese factory automation player. And it's actually the, the, the leading player in optical sensors and, and machine vision, um, which, which sounds very complex. But I think the easiest way to think about what it, what it actually does is effectively is that it gives eyes to blind machines or to robots so that those machines can perform much more complicated tasks and also provide much more detailed information on their environment so that whoever's operating them has a really great sense of what's going on. On the supply chain point, this is a really positive benefit and a big opportunity because for example some of the things that it can do it you know if you have one of their products um, can inspect finished or half finished goods in a manufacturing process extremely quickly and much more efficiently than, than a human can and that means you know if, if a half finished good is is faulty and it continues through the manufacturing process obviously you then have a you have an end product that's faulty so that's wasted or it, you know, it can now it can look at um, not just a sort of uniform set of objects, but it can look at parcels or boxes in a in a bin. So you think about an e-commerce sorting centre where all your products are coming from, and a, and a robot can now actually pick out different sized individual items. It can scan it and it can sort it for you. So people are rethinking structurally um, how they how they want to operate their supply chains and 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 how they want to go forward and in a more efficient way, particularly, as we've said, with the pressures of inflation and particularly with concerns around doing everything in one country and, and realising how much problem that can bring. So, yeah, we, th we think it's more of a structural shift and it, it feeds into, as, as with many of these things, it also feeds into trends that we were seeing before and has accelerated them and exacerbated them. So, Ultimately, we're already seeing the pressure from a, from a shrinking workforce. We're already seeing the pressure from an aging population. And I think this has just strengthened those trends even further. It feels like every industry is sort of embracing automation in its, its own unique way. I know, so Bryce and I previously had a retail background um, and there was a British company actually that was sort of right on the forefront of grocery and supermarket automation, which was Ocado. Yeah. Be interested to know if you have any thoughts on that because Bryce and I still disagree on the merits of Ocado. Are there any particular companies that are servicing particular industries or sectors like Ocado is servicing the grocery sector that you think is a really interesting or novel use case of some of this supply chain automation? When, when we think about a kind of automation and robotics in particular, I think 
what what is the most striking thing is as you say automation has is used in many many different industries now but at the same time there's a there's a massive difference in penetration by region and and also by industry still so if you if you look at um robots for example in south korea today there are around a thousand robots per 10,000 employees in the manufacturing sector but the global average is still only around 140 and even if you look at uh, the US or Japan, you're kind of talking about three to 400 robots. So we still think that there's massive penetration to go uh, in, in this is particularly with robots, but we think around the world. So that's, that's one thing that gets us really excited. Um, the other thing is just, as you, as you mentioned, you know, Cardo's in the grocery space. Lots of, lots of companies um, in different spaces are continuing to adopt automation, but the car industry is still far and away the biggest user of automation they've been early adopters and i think you know it depends on the region but around 10 times higher usage of robots in in the car industry than in, in many other industries wow. um and so what we think is exciting is, is looking outside of those very penetrated industries and where the opportunities are and i think you know one thing that's really starting to come through i think as, as as robotics as automation becomes cheaper and as it becomes simpler to install it's actually much more obtainable for some of the smaller industries and the smaller companies to invest behind. Um, you know, there's now cobots, which are collaborative robots, which, which don't, you don't just work in isolation, they work with a human, um, because it's, historically it's been quite dangerous to have a robot, because obviously it doesn't know if it's picking up a, a parcel or it's accidentally picked up a human, so there's a, there's a big risk. But now they're, they're getting robots which are much more sensitive and you can actually just install in a factory line with people still there. So, rather than having to rebuild a completely new factory line, you can just put them, slot them into place alongside your existing workers. It's, a, it's an easier step to take than full investment. So I think there's loads of opportunities everywhere in, in automation, I think, that, and, it's, and it's driven by technology as well as the structural trends. I've never heard the term cobots before. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a new one for me. I, I like that. Well, it's, it's still pretty small, but it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting space. Can't, can't wait until I can get a cobot co-host here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. That'd be good. <laughs> well, uh, you've mentioned um, a, a company already, Oliver, and that was Key and Control. Let's turn to some specific stocks to, I guess, illustrate what you've you've been talking about. And if you want to continue down the route of Kean in the automation space, or perhaps there are others in the portfolio that you could bring to light, we'll start there. And then maybe a couple of others that are in the other sort of pillars of the demographics theme. Well, maybe just to finish on, on Kean's, because I think, so first of all, it, it has these fantastic products in this, in this sort of vision and, and senses space, which is underpenetrated within automation relative to other parts of so relative to robots that we think gives it a much stronger growth outlook and should outgrow the end market as well it's also an incredibly innovative company which i think is one of the most fascinating things about it so 20 to 30 percent of its annual revenues are from new products which is developed within the last 12 to 18 months and, and when you think about some of these things going into factory lines which will be in place for a long time i think that just it's, a, it's an amazing stat and it shows you um, how innovative it is and it's got a different business model as well. So this is, I think this this is again is you know we're not just finding companies which play into these themes, but we we can go a level below that. We're very fortunate to have experts around the world in all of these sectors, and so we can talk to the analysts and really understand the business model. And the key in business model is differentiated versus peers as well, um, because they they don't have they're fabulous. So they don't have their own manufacturing, so actually they outsource manufacturing, and they really just focus on the design process, and so that gives them more flexibility. 
and also they sell directly to customers. So they, they cut out the um, the distributor, the sort of the middleman, which has a, a double advantage. Of firstly, you don't lose the margin to the to the middleman, who inevitably you have to pay some money to. But secondly, you have incredibly close relationships with the customer. Um, so not only can you encourage them to buy more of your product, but also you um, can get great feedback from them about what they're looking for. And that then feeds back into the, um, the research and design process. And you can really make sure you're making things that, that, that the customer wants. So that's an example where you have a sort of virtuous circle which continues to build competitive advantages, which we think is that's exactly the sort of thing that we're looking for. And also, obviously, automation from a sustainability perspective is great because you have less waste, you have better products, and you have safer working environments. So um, that's that's one stock and automation. I think if we look outside of automation, maybe on the on the better lives back, well, actually. Best, better and longer lives together, I think, is a good example of how a company called Essilor Luxottica, which um, I, I don't know if people would be familiar with, but it's, it's a, you definitely know their products in that um, it's a combination of two businesses. So uh, Luxottica is an Italian sunglasses company, effectively. It owns the Ray-Ban brand. It owns the Oakley brand. It makes a lot of sunglasses frames for other brands through through licenses, and it operates stores like Sunglass Hut, I think OPSM you have in Australia. Yep. It's pretty well known, and it's very dominant in its market. And then it merged with Essilor, which is the leading manufacturer of lenses, so, so lenses for glasses, um, sunglasses, and prescription glasses. And they, they merged in about 2018. And it's created this really dominant player <clears throat> in the eyewear industry, um, has uh, to get combined, it has over 20% market share. It's four times bigger than the next biggest player in eyewear, and it's fully vertically integrated. So they design the products, they design the lenses and the frames, they manufacture the products, they market the products, and they sell the products through their own stores. Uh, and that's put it in an incredible position relative to peers because it controls every part of the of the value chain, and it has a great relationship with customers and also the, with sort of retail customers but also because it's so dominant has a fantastic relationship with other people in the industry who need to buy lenses for example who are designing frames so it's become this really really powerful player in what is a very attractive industry so eyewear is structurally growing market you have pretty low penetration around the world around 60 percent of the world needs their site corrected but of those, only around 40% actually have it. So there's a sort of structural penetration angle. Then obviously, as the population ages, it, you, people increasingly need glasses. So that fits into one of our themes. And at the same time, as emerging middle-class wealth grows, they tend to buy more into branded products. And so that, that's how it fits that theme. Um, and again, so when we think about that, it's in a great position but also it's brought together, the benefits of the merger is brought together two very complicated supply chains. Coming back to supply chains again, which you know you used to build lenses in one place, frames in another place, design them separately, and then put them together at the end. And also you then had to ship frames and lenses separately to all of the stores, whereas now you can do that together, which provides huge efficiency. So it's a great company, very dominant position in a structurally growing end market. 
um, where we think there's huge synergy potential still to come through from the deal they've done recently. Mm. Um, so we think that's a, that's a really interesting stock. You, you do really run a global fund. We had a Japanese company and then an Italian company. It is just real a real reminder that the opportunity set is truly global and it's kind of refreshing to hear about companies that aren't listed in the US. I was about to ask, is there one other company? And as I was about to ask it, I knew that it's going to be listed in the US after I said that. But uh, <laughs> do, you have, yeah. do you have maybe one more? I will talk about one more. I think, I think it is, you know, one of the things about the fund that's great is the breadth. But also we, we have a very strict uh, thematic purity um, criteria as well. And I think it's, it's good because, you know, we can invest all over the world, but also we are very careful to make sure that all of the stocks fit into our into our themes and we have a we have a pretty rigorous process around that but yeah it's, it's very exciting to be able to pick stocks from from anywhere it's great you know, and we think it sets the fun up well but yeah so I, the other company i was going to talk about is is solar edge oh, yeah. um which is yeah us so <laughs> i think it's um this one is is a play in our our more lives bucket it's a solar power play so it fits into how can we provide energy sustainably to to a growing population and what Solar Edge does, um, for, for people who aren't familiar with it, is it, it, it creates, it, it makes inverters. So this effectively converts uh, the electricity in a solar panel into electricity that you can power, that you can use around your home, because otherwise, it, otherwise you wouldn't be able to use it. Um, and so it's absolutely essential to installing a solar system in a home or in an, or in an office or in any sort of environment. That their technology is actually very differentiated. So effectively what they do, they have power optimised, which effectively means that in, the, in a legacy system, if there's a problem anywhere in the solar system, that reduces the output and the capability of the whole system, whereas they have an individual system. So if you have a problem somewhere, it doesn't reduce the output from the rest of the system. So it's much more effective, much more efficient, and a much better proposition as, as a customer. Effectively, it's a play on on solar power, which we I think has a very strong growth outlook ahead of it. We think could have at least fifteen percent per year out to twenty thirty. We know that energy demand will continue to grow around the world as there's more people coming onto the planet. There's increasing urbanisation, uh, and obviously just a general kind of electrification trend as we see more and more people in electric vehicles or using heat pumps to, to heat their homes. Then we think there's a natural trend as people want to use more renewable energy and, and obviously governments are now really getting behind it as well in terms of the subsidies and, and some of the incentives that they're offering. And then again, you know, that's the theme and then we're, sort of, we're trying to go one level below that. So it's also a very dominant position in its markets, the number one player, particularly in US residential, where it's over 50% market share. Uh, but it is pretty diversified by geography as well. It's got decent returns. It's got it's got pretty good margins, and and so we think it's a you know it's an attractive play. You know, within solar, there's not there's many areas of the market where we don't make any money at all. Um, so this is an example of where we can find a stock which plays into the theme, but also has the sort of attractive financial characteristics and the defensibility of positioning that that we're looking for in in a stock. Love it. So we had Can. Essilor Luxottica and Solar Edge. So uh, yeah. three uh, three great stocks there. We have got to the uh, the final three questions of our uh, interview, Oliver. So thank you for your time. If anyone would like more information on the uh, Global Demographics Fund, uh, you can head to the Fidelity website. It's fidelity.com.au and then under the funds. The ticker is ASXFDEM. Um, if you are if you're interested uh, and a shout out to Fidelity for supporting this episode as well but uh, Ren we have reached final three questions to close it out that's right Oliver the 
first one we always like to end with. Uh, do you have any books that you consider must read? I think I think it's important to read a lot of many books you carry. I think you get you get so much information from reading books. It's, you know, in investing, it's, it's I think it's the best source of, of learning that you can. It's the best source of learning that you can use really. And people, so many people have done it before, and it, it's great to learn from from the real experts. In terms of must reads, I think it, I, I, I wouldn't pick one book. I think for me. Uh, Depending on sort of where you are in your investing journey, I think I remember the, the book that I read when I before I joined Fidelity was um, a book by Anthony Bolton called Investing Against the Tide. Anthony Bolton is a sort of Fidelity legend, extremely successful PM over portfolio manager over over a very long period of time, and I think it's it, it, I found it very interesting just to understand how he thought about investing, what he was looking for in stocks. He was he was typically a sort of value or contrarian investor. And it's a great insight into what he was looking for, the kind of characteristics of, of a stock he was looking for. But also, I, I found it interesting to understand a bit more about asset management and what it's like to work in a, in a large asset manager and, and really understand about the process within, within an asset manager. I think that that's one book that's great as a sort of more of an introduction, I suppose. But for me personally, one book that I found incredibly helpful or sort of uh, expanded the way that I was thinking about the world was, was Thinking Fast and Slow mm. by Daniel Kahneman. Obviously, I think you know, it's a pretty well-known book, but it's not, it's not specifically about investing, although it does reference investing, but it's, it's much more about sort of how the human brain works, you know, I guess how, the, how it operates, how it, you can take shortcuts sometimes, how you can, you can be a bit lazy in thinking processes, um, and then also how there are so many biases and things that we're constantly, we do very quickly in our heads, which we're not even aware of. And I think for me, it was very relevant because in investing, you're, you're constantly confronted by uncertainty. I mean, ultimately, we're trying to think about and predict the future, which, which no one can really do. Um, and so I found it very helpful and sort of informative to understand some of the hurdles that we have in our brains. And we're trying to think about these complicated things that we're never actually going to know the answer to. And although it doesn't necessarily mean you get them right, I think it's just uh, it's just an interesting way to learn about kind of natural biases in your brain, how you can overcome them, and hopefully be able to think about what are, where there is where there is no real correct answer. How to think about things more effectively. Yeah, I love that. Two great recommendations. I haven't heard of Investing Against the Tide, but uh, we've been doing this podcast for five years and I still have no idea what the inside of a large asset manager is. So uh, (laughs) I think I'll be picking that one up. Uh, But Oliver, the second question we like to close out these interviews with, um, just forget valuation for a minute, uh, turn off the stock market, just purely on what the company is, what it does, and who it's run by. What's the best company you've ever come across? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I think we're, we're fortunate that we, we look at a lot of great companies all the time. I think, I think for me personally, so as I said, I've been a consumer discretionary analyst looking uh, in Europe. I think for me personally, the best company would be LVMH, which is very, very large luxury conglomerate based in Europe. I think pretty much the biggest company in Europe now. It's had a phenomenal time over the past few years. And so I, I know it very well. I've met the management team uh, several times, at least the CFO. And, you know, every time you meet them, you learn something more about the industry and, and it's absolutely fascinating. So they, you know, I think the, the real, the reason it, it's done so incredibly well is because of their portfolio of brands. So they have phenomenally successful brands and when you look at the heritage of some of these brands they are so so difficult to replicate you know 100 years more than 100 years of of uh of existence and all of that sort of brand equity that that builds up so that's that's a huge barrier to entry you know others just just can't recreate 
But at the same time, even once you have that brand exit, it doesn't necessarily mean the company is going to be incredibly successful. So I think, you know, they, they really are an extremely impressive management team. So Mr. Arno, who effectively founded the company um, and, and continues to run the company today, he has a, a, an absolutely brilliant way of nurturing brands and making them grow. And I think it's fast. They have a slightly different operating model to some other luxury companies in that it's very decentralized. So they believe that every brand has to prove that it can stand on its own, own two feet um, as a separate entity, pretty much within this huge conglomerate. So although you obviously get some benefits around if you want to uh, lease a store in a certain place in a, in a shopping mall or something like that, you get some benefits of being in the group and you get you get learnings for other companies for other brands in the group actually every brand is forced to to prove that it's worth its it's worth its position in the group on its own and i think that just creates real discipline within the business and it means that if there are problem areas they get weeded out very very quickly so i think that's one so the way it's run is incredibly impressive so it's also really diversified across categories so it's got wines and spirits which is focused on cognac through the hennessy brand and, and through pretty much every major champagne brand you can think of. Mo Hennessy, obviously, is the main one. Uh, then you've got watches and jewellery, you've got perfumes, cosmetics, uh, but it's also diversified very nicely across geographies as well. So it's it's a great business. And I think the key thing at the moment is the pricing power that these brands bring you. So Louis Vuitton has, has raised prices sort of 20, 30%, depending on the specific product over the past few years. And it, it's amazed me. You go into a downturn, you think volumes might slow, and they say, don't worry, we'll just raise prices and we'll still get the revenue growth. And it's that ability to do that. I just, there's not many companies that can do that. Yeah, it's it's such an unbelievable story. Can't say I'm frequented too many of their businesses, but uh, it's impressive <laughs> to watch. <laughs> yeah. And then, Oliver, uh, final question. If you think back to your younger self, maybe uh, when you were reading Investing Against the Tide and thinking about what it would be like going and working in a place like Fidelity, you know, earlier in your investing career, what advice would you give to your younger self? I think when I, when I think back, so I, I actually started in um, investment banking. So I did M&A for, for nearly four years. And I realized after about three months that I didn't want to do it particularly. Um, and so th- then, unfortunately, when I started, it was, it was kind of 2007, 2008. So it wasn't the easiest time to move jobs. And I, I was sort of very frustrated at the time. And, and I, I really wanted, I, I knew that I wanted to do investing. And that became clearer and clearer while I was doing M&A. Um, but it took me a, a long time to get out of it. And, you know, in the end, I'm very glad it, it took that time. And I think I ended up exactly where I wanted to be. And it was, and I, I feel incredibly happy. But I think if I look back at that time, I, I think I would say to myself, and I say to other people, just you know, take your time. And there is no need to rush when, you, when you're starting out, I think. It's much more important to get as much as you can from every experience that you're going through and really take the time to think about what you want to do, what you're good at. Um, and there's this sort of feeling that you've got to get on straight away. And I think, you know, now I look back on it and you realize there's so much time in those days. It's much more important to use that as well as you can, really learn from every experience and not be desperate to get on and actually just take the time and then you end up in the right place. Well, Oliver, we thank you so much for, for coming on Equity Mates and uh, helping us unpack the global demographics and, and the investment opportunity that it does present. As Ren said, global the global population's just ticked over 8 billion, so plenty of opportunities in some of the major pillars within uh, the Fidelity Global Demographics Fund. We do really appreciate your time all the way from... The other side of the world. Are you in London? 
I'm actually, I'm actually near Newbury in England, but yeah, there not far from London. Not far. <laughs> Easier to say London. London, <laughs> same thing. Final question, yeah. Oliver. Is it's it that, coming home? Is it coming home? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, depending on That's when the we... Re- one of the days. Yeah. <laughs> depending on when this gets released, you may or may not have played France, so you may look like a genius or <laughs> might yeah. have to edit it out. <laughs> well, I think France is, France is the biggest hurdle, but yeah. Mm. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Well, um, all the best. But um, as I said, really appreciate your time. Um, thank you very much. No problem. Thanks very much, guys. You have been listening to an Equity Mates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.